This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And it is an honor for TPNR to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Now, before we start, I have a huge, huge favor to ask. You know the regular follow, subscribe, and all that. Um, but if you haven't given us a rating, hopefully five stars and written a review, would you do that? Seriously, if you have, go to one of the other podcast apps and do it again. We're starting to get a lot of downloads, which is great. But the one thing we need is to get more reviews. That's the way we get ranked and noticed by the big apps like Apple and Spotify and all the others. And it all helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with Emmy Award winner Larry Wilmore. Larry Wilmore is a prolific producer, actor, comedian, and writer. He is also the host of the excellent podcast, Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. He has so many interesting guests, and the conversations are always enlightening and entertaining. Larry's perhaps best known for his role as host of Comedy Central's The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, and as the senior black correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Off-screen, Larry serves as co-creator and consulting producer on HBO's Insecure. He helped launch ABC's Blackish as an executive producer and as a co-creator of the spinoff Grownish. Previously, Larry hosted his own Showtime Town Hall-style comedy specials, Larry Wilmore's Race, Religion, and Sex, right up our alley. <laughs> he is, yeah, he is written for In Living Color, which I guess people still get pretty crazy about. That was a, a real cultural moment. Uh, he has written the the PJs, which he co-created, The Office, in which he also appeared, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He also served as creator, writer, and executive producer of he's like go on no really go on yeah. the Bernie Mac show which earned him his Emmy enough Corey they've heard enough okay all right <laughs> I'm reading your resume now no it's the first of, of many mm-hmm. Emmys I am sure and other awards so um more than anything I I love the book too like the, so if all of that wasn't enough the book was just too much I can't I I just heard rumor has it there might be another book coming out sometime in the next com- in the in the coming years so Professor Larry Wilmore. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. How you Thanks. doing? Thanks, Corey. Very good. It's like enough already. <laughs> There's a, a clip from, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big golf fan. You know, I think when, when Tiger first started, it really got me into golf, you know, following Tiger and stuff. And, you know, in Tiger's first few years, I mean, he was winning everything, right? Just blazing the course. And he was uh, uh, teamed up with Phil Mickelson, you know, his arrival at the time. And they were doing the introductions and uh, the guy's like, oh, and now on the first tee, the winner of the such and such invitational from uh, La Jolla, California, Phil Mickelson. And, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. and also, tee, you know, from uh, Cerritos, California, whatever, winner of the American Express Invitational, winner of the United States Open, winner of the Masters Tournament, winner of the PGA. And Mickelson goes, all right, all right. <laughs> we got it. Like the guy. In like every single tournament Tiger won. Well, you know, it's like, yeah, this dude, Tiger, that's 
It's yeah, totally. It's a, I, I was surprised at how how prolific you are. Uh, I mean, I I know I I was first introduced to your work on screen because I was a huge Daily Show fan when you know, especially John Stewart. He's like he's like my homie. He grew up about ten minutes from where I grew up. You know, grew up in similar circumstances I, as I grew up. Uh, Jersey boy. You know, a Jewish background, Jewish family. Um, and so see, he, I was a big fan of his work and then see, then I got introduced to so many other, uh, I, I don't know if you call them creators, but just, um, thinkers, comedians, writers, and you were certainly one of them. And then digging into your, your background and your, uh, the breadth of your, of your experience was really, was really overwhelming. So, you, you know, speaking of which, I, I thought that might be a good, a good way to learn more about how you do what you do and how you became a uh, writer, producer, mentor mm-hmm. of so many folks, you know, <laughs> I thought a good way to, mm-hmm. to ask you about it would be to start with your four loves from when you were growing up, Houdini, the Marx brothers, Buster Keaton and the Beatles. So <laughs> can you tell me like for each one, how you discovered each one, why you were drawn to them and how they uh, might've influenced your, your work to this day? That's great. Yeah, I have to substitute the Beatles because the Beatles came when I was an adult, actually. But growing up, yeah, Houdini, Buster Keaton, Marx Brothers, and then the other one is Flip Wilson. Oh, okay. those were the ones that I had. Those are the ones I had growing up. People that um, were just Flip Wilson was the first person that I identified with as just irresistibly funny. So he was really my first influence, you know. Um, and I used to do impressions of him when he would do Geraldine and that kind of stuff, the character that he did. Um, my brother and I, we used to do little skits and stuff like that. So I was obsessed with Flip Wilson. And then the second one was Houdini. Um, I think I saw that Tony Curtis movie with Janet Lee about Houdini. And I, I had just gotten into magic as a young kid. And I was already obsessed with magic. So, but Houdini just sent me down a whole rabbit hole and, you know, there's no internet then. So you had to go to the library, (laughs) you know, find all these books that you could, you know, I did my own Google search, you know, went down that, uh, and just read everything. I was just exhausted myself. I was just upset. You know what it was? I was so fascinated and I kind of still am today by really famous people and what made that happen. Like, why did the world connect with that? person and why did they endure because Houdini still endures you know it's fascinating to me you know the Marx Brothers the same thing not quite as big as Houdini but they were a sensation when they started you know and Groucho you know really big too but the Marx Brothers had kind of a comeback when I was about 10 or 11 and my dad took me to see it was uh, W.C. Fields and My Little Chickadee Marx Brothers, Animal Crackers, and Duck Soup. It was like three three pictures or something like that. Or it may have just been Animal Crackers and My Little Chickadee. You know, you know how we had those false memories. And I couldn't believe how funny the Marx Brothers was and how funny Groucho was, you know. And so I went down the Marx Brothers rabbit hole and saw everything I could see about them, all that kind of stuff. And then the last one was Buster Keaton, you know. And I first learned about him in college. A friend of mine had a – he used to – um, screen eight millimeter and six millimeter films at his house because you know nobody had videotapes in his infancy, and he had some Buster Keaton films and I had never seen Keaton before, and instantly fell in love with it. And these, the reason why these were important to me is that it wasn't like a passing affair. 
you know, they stuck with me. They, you know, that term stickiness that Malcolm Gladwell uses, you know, they stuck with me forever. You know, I, they're still as vivid in my mind as when I first saw them, you know. I'm still, anytime a Buster Keaton film is on, I have to watch it. You know, there's something about him that's so watchable to me. Later, the Beatles happened when, after John Lennon died, and um, my brother had a, this was a couple of years after he died. And, you know, I was aware of the Beatles and stuff growing up. They're, they were in the background, no big deal. If you asked me to name Beatles songs, I could probably name Yellow Submarine and Let It Be, right? <laughs> Maybe yesterday. That shows you how big of a fan I was. Because there was so much great music when I was growing up. You know, Beatles was just part of it, right? But they weren't special to me when I was growing up. But when um, my brother, um, stop me if I'm going too long. On no, this please. Thing, you know? My brother was playing a recording of the Beatles live at the Hollywood Bowl. Um, that he had. And I was struck by the audience, by the reaction to them. I was like, I had forgotten, you know, as a kid, it's just around you. You don't really know what that is. But hearing it as an adult all those years later, I was like, geez, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, why are they screaming like this? It was a nonstop, you know, and just playing the music. It was so raw and everything. So with the Beatles, I went back and I got the albums from the beginning and I kind of went through the chronology and like in real time and kind of followed them in real time. And it was good that I wasn't saturated with the songs yet, you know? So I made all these discoveries, you know, of their music. So I, I really fell in love with, you know, I had already known their image, but I became a fan of their music of the musicology of the Beatles. You know, once you fall in love there, it just, of course, everybody knows any Beatle maniac, it just doesn't go away. You know, so you're, you you're such a, you're such a, a renaissance guy. And even as a kid, it seems like you, you had a, a number of different interests from science and space to yeah. uh, drawn to comedy. Uh, did, and, and then you, you've manifested a lot of this. Like uh, from what I understand, you're still an amateur mu- uh, magician. You, you show up at the yeah. Magic Castle and stuff. Um, yeah. I, did, just, I just joined the board of directors there, actually. Yeah. Oh, wow. Did, so have you ever tried playing music? Music I don't have a knack for, you know, I've tried guitar a couple of times, piano, but almost there's so many people in my family here musical talent, musically talented. It's so funny. It just kind of escaped me. But I love music and I I, I wish I would have um, I, I was never given piano lessons growing up. And man, I wish I had, you know, because uh, I really do love the creative process that can happen with the piano. It's just fascinating to me, like the way you can just, I guess maybe because I like creating things, you know, the way, how you can discover with a piano, discover songs and that kind of stuff. And you can play almost anything on a piano. It's great. Yeah. I used to to play pretty well. uh, But when we first moved to California, we were so broke, we couldn't afford uh, an apartment big enough to have a piano. And uh, I couldn't afford one of those 88 key touch sensitive. So I got away from it. Later in life, though, you know what? It, I played for different reasons when I was a kid. I just, you know, I was trying to impress the girls or whatever. But later in sure. life. <laughs> That's the reason why a lot of people start. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So speaking of motivation, you said something really interesting. You studied, so you, you studied um, or went down this rabbit hole of studying uh, Keaton's work and the Marx Brothers work. Yeah. And, but the question you were trying to answer, why did they why did they connect with audiences and why do they have the staying power as opposed to studying their careers 
others, especially in your youth, you're drawn to more vain pursuits. Like why, how did they become famous? How did they become successful? But it sounds like even as a kid, you were connected to something more meaningful. Is that fair to say or? Yeah. Cause I was, I was drawn to the experience of being with them, you know, like, what is it about this experience? Like what's going on? Like why, why is this connection being made? That's such a, so powerful. And it started with Houdini when, and it's funny cause you're right. I was a kid having those thoughts. I, I didn't think about that with Flip Wilson. He was just funny and made me laugh, but Houdini, I did, I was fascinated with why were people so fascinated with this character? You know, like what was he doing? I wasn't doing it so much on like what made him a success, you know, that type of thing. It was more, what was that connection that he had? It was more of that. Like, why were people drawn to him more than what were the rules of success he had? Number one, you didn't know. It wasn't like that type of thing, you know. It was like, what was it? What was the thing that, why did people connect to him? You know, what was that, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of rules of success, you, you, um, I, I, by the way, it's at the root of a lot of things. Like religion is in that category, you know, Jesus certainly has that. You know, there was something about Christ, you know, that people couldn't put down, you know, about his life and experience, you know. So I, I got to say, we, we've had a lot of scholars on here, professors, um, archaeologists, mm-hmm. historians, theologians, linguists. Uh, but of all the people, when, when I read your book, that chapter in your book, you've made the best case so far about the fact that Jesus was indeed black. So do you, do you want to expound on that? <laughs> I, I barely can remember some of that, but, but well, uh, for those of you that don't know, I wrote a book of like fake essays. The book, the premise of the book that I didn't quite pull off though, it was like Larry Wilmore disappeared, my alter ego Larry Wilmore. He disappeared, but somehow I was here to collect all of his black thoughts is what I called them. <laughs> and, um, and some were essays, some were just random thoughts, some were like radio interviews he did, you know, and all all different kinds of things. And this one was called it was it was an essay making the case that Jesus was black, and not just like dark skin, curly hair, like black, like he was from Harlem or something, like ethnically black. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. So very silly, because that's to me that's what black people do. They don't want when black people say Jesus was black, they don't just want him to be like dark skin and that they want him to be like a brother, you know, yeah. like that's what they really want. And it's like, no guys, that's, that's not how history works. Sorry. I appreciate the thoughts, but. <laughs> yeah. We, we had similar conversations in my house growing up. Uh, I grew up in an observant Jewish home and uh, always talking about, you know, that, that guy was Jewish, you know, to, to Freud or Einstein. In fact, I, I went to Hebrew high school. My father taught a class and all the, Jews that had such a big impact on, uh, on, on history. So uh, you, you want to take pride in, you know, your people. So connect. Well, people, if you're going to be worshiping someone, it would be nice if the thing or person that you're worshiping reflects you in some way. Yeah. So if it does, I think people want to make it so. Yeah. Or to be able to identify uh, or, or see oneself somehow. Um, you, you, I don't know. This isn't necessarily uh, with Jesus, but, um, he was a Jew, you know, but he, no, but seeing others and studying others that you can identify with in some way, all of a sudden you can see yourself in that role. Like I didn't know Jews could do this or black people could do that. And then, uh, perhaps you with Flip Wilson, or I've heard you mentioned Diane Carroll. 
uh, perhaps that yeah. made it more real, like a, a approachable in a way. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of your formative years. I've heard you talk about that summer after your junior year in college uh, when you sold books door to door. It seems yeah. to like you talk about it a lot. It seems like for something that seems relatively unrelated to a lot of what you do, why do you think that that summer and that particular job was so uh, sticks with you to this day? Well, that was my inciting incident to do what I wanted to do for a living. I, I use it in, um, I just did the commencement speech for Harvard class day. And it, the reason why I was in the air recently is because I did it um, included in my speech talking about, it. I wrote an essay about this a few years ago for LinkedIn. And um, so I present that, I kind of uh, present that essay to them as part of my speech, you know, and in the essay, it really sums up the journey that I had uh, in that summer, just going into many people's homes and that sort of thing. And, seeing a lot of people unhappy and realizing how many life choices that you make at certain times are so important and powerful to your life's direction, you know, and your happiness and that. And, and because of observing a lot of that and, and the journey that I went through was choosing something in my life that was going to bring happiness to me. And the other parts would be secondary or tertiary, but choose that first, choose fulfillment first and let everything else follow. And so at that point, I considered myself a success for doing that and instead of success being a destination. To me, it was, I was already there and then everything else was, I was just walking on this journey, you know? So it was, that's kind of what the crux of it is. And it was a very large epiphany in my, in my life in terms of what I wanted to dedicate my life to. That's what that, that's what happened for that summer. One thing I was curious about is is you've had ups and downs. You you've suffered professional setbacks, yeah. uh, personal tragedy. Thing you'd have like everyone else. <laughs> yeah. So so that mm. that concept of success being you know uh, more of a mindset or or the journey, the path that you're on. Once you committed to mm. that path, is that one of the right. ways that you've been able to um, to sur- survive or or cu- come back from some of those setbacks or. Well, I don't do these things as a stra- as a coping strategy, as a psychological coping strategy, that sort of thing. I, I do it more as a fact, you know, so I have a framework by which I can guide my life and live, you know, but not so much as a coping mechanism, you know. Um, but to me, I think I think people don't have a a lot of clarity in their lives over very important issues. One of the the lines that I said in the speech and I said my thing, and this is not my original line. It's something I heard that week when I was, they were training us to sell bookstore to door was that uh, most people spend more time planning a two week vacation than they do planning their lives, you know? And that really stuck with me. That line was like, wow, that's deep, you know? And we don't put a lot of thought into very important moments in our lives or things in our lives. Like, like why don't, do we really think about what our values are, for instance, is one thing. And like, if you're going to be marrying somebody or getting together with somebody, why would you not consider values as an important, you know, way to connect and meet with somebody as opposed to that? The other things are good too, but that's also consideration because what is your journey going to be with this person? You know, those types of things, really important things to think about, you know, and to think about your life as a journey and there are steps to that journey 
and knowing to have clarity around what is happiness. Does happiness mean you're like this all the time? Or does happiness really mean that you have clarity about your life, your life's direction, and you understand that part of living a full life is there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. There's going to be things that are going to bring you joy, and there's going to be things that are going to bring extreme sadness. But that's part of life's journey. It's not meant to keep you static. If you're static, then you're not living. So when you know that, you know those things are temporary. You know, they're not, you know, they could be very ephemeral. Yeah, tragedy can happen in your life, but there may be a victory the next year. You don't know, but it doesn't matter. It's all part of what life is. When you understand that, that gives you more peace than anything else, as opposed to what a lot of people do is they wait till something happens and then they try to do a, a psychological forensics of the event that happened to try to make themselves feel better or whatever. So it's very targeted. You know, does that make sense? It, it does. It does. But I'm curious after it seems like there was such a uh, such a reaction. One of the one of the professional moments I'm thinking of is there seemed to be such a reaction culturally to your speech uh, when you hosted the White House Correspondents Dinner. Um, and that that one joke and it, the, like the joke wasn't even about the address of, of President Obama, but um, or, or the you know, the sto- that part of, of the talk. But then just the 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 use of the N word at the end there, there seemed to be such an such a, a, a strong reaction. In fact, I don't know for sure, but it seems like the your, your show on Comedy Central um, that ended shortly thereafter. So how hard. I, if that is the case, how hard is it to maintain that mindset when it's like, wait, guys, did you did, did you not hear the story? Did you not get the joke? Or like, I, I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is sometimes the reaction that you get and, and some of the circumstances just don't seem in accord with reality. Like, I, you know, do you ever do you ever fall to the temptation of saying this is this is fucked up? Like, this is unfair. So how hard is it in those moments to maintain that mindset that you're talking about? Well, I think. One of my favorite phrases, and I've told this to my kids, too, is sometimes you have to say, I disagree with your premise, mm. you know, as opposed to answering yes or no to something. Right. You know, so part of your premise I have to disagree with. Um, the, those events aren't related. Okay. My, the show on Comedy Central was having some problems with the network. They they kind of abandoned us about six months before it even went off the air, way before the White House Correspondents Center. So we were kind of on there. We felt we had found our wind after that year and a half, but I think we just weren't given enough time. And there's a longer conversation we had about that, but that's a showbiz issue. Some shows make it longer, some don't. To me, that's just the way it goes. You know, White House Correspondents Center is different. It was an isolated event. It had nothing to do with my show. They weren't related. Some people, because... It happened a few months later. Thought, oh, he said that, and the show got canceled. Comedy Central doesn't care about that. If you got that kind of notoriety from something, that's a reason to stay on, not a reason to go off. Right, know? right. Um, but it's not like they were an arm of the White House you know, press corps. Yeah, yeah. Comedy Central, right? Sakes, they had Tosh Point oh. I mean, why would they be concerned over <laughs> fair language or whatever? You know, it had nothing to do with it. You know. So maybe maybe a better yeah. example of that, um, especially because it was earlier in your career, you extreme you experienced such great success with the Bernie Mac show, and then leaving that mm-hmm. show, that must have been a hard time to, you know. Well, I didn't leave the show. I was fired from the show. Yeah, yeah. So getting fired from from having such success after having such yeah. success with it, that must have been a harder time to maintain that, 
you know, it, Terrible. It, that, that mindset, you know, uh, what you talked about Harvard class day, it is what it is. Do what you got to do. Play better. That's right. Um, it was terrible. But, you know, as I said, those things happen in showbiz. It's happened. There are worse examples of that to that have happened to other people, you know, and I was very lucky that so many of my colleagues reached out to comfort me and say this is bullshit and all that kind of stuff. And I also the other thing I have to tell you, um, Corey, is that I was it for me. Showbiz can't threaten to take anything away from me. You know, when people like if they if I get fired from that and I feel like my life is ruined, I've given those people way too much power over my life. Mm. You know, I'm not turning my life over to showbiz people. Are you kidding? They're some of the worst people in the world. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if uh you know, if if your family kicks you out, that's a much that's a bigger issue. If you if your children reject you, I would consider that much more dire. But not getting fired from a TV show for Christ's sakes. You know, I have enough confidence in my ability to stuff that I know I can rebound. I can do something again. And guess what? If I can't, I'm I'm good with that too. You know, showbiz isn't the end all. It's just a job. It's just a profession. It isn't who I am. It's what I do. Yeah. You know, they're not. The same. Thing. So, yeah, it was terrible and it was bad and it was a rough time. But at the at the when the dust clears, what do you have? Honestly, you know, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your craft. Um, I, you said that you write through the voice of the characters. Uh, is that is that always the case? Because like even with the book, it's almost like you you channeled the professor and then channeled mm-hmm. the alter ego, Larry Wilmore. Um, you've talked mm-hmm. about it when you're writing scripts. You can hear the voice of the character and the character yeah. is speaking through you. Is that always the way you write or is there ever Larry Wilmore, Larry Mo- Wilmore, who's channeled? No, Larry Wilmore uh, comes up with the story. Ah, Like I come up with the story and the, and the journey and I think of twists and turns, maybe that, what it's about. But once I'm into the characters and the relationship, they take over and they surprise me. I have no idea what they're going to say until they say it. You know, know, I have no idea. Some of the behavior stuff sometimes changes the things that I've come up with because, you know, I didn't know they were going to do that. You know? Yeah. Um, And so part of that, I think that started I my early comedy career. And when I was a kid, too, I did a lot of impressions. And when you're doing impressions, the the best way that I always did impressions is I would channel, you know, not just do the voice, but then channel the personality or the point of view of who the person I was doing. And that's how you come up with the jokes and stuff for, cause this is what they would normally, this is what they would say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now it also seems like a lot of your work is co- comedy is really the language through which you speak about culture or, or, um, uh, sat here. You had, you said something when I, you said, um, I prefer to be contrary and find ways to discover the truth through satire, whether I start off agreeing with it or not. So your, your work is almost a way to observe culture, comment on culture. Is that fair to say? Am I reading too much into it? Yeah. Uh, it isn't always a conscious thing. It's just kind of the way my, my mind works, you know? So I think when we reverse engineer it, then I can normally look at like that. But most of the time I'm just trying to figure out what the joke is or the point of view or that type of thing through most of my career or what would be funny about this, you know, and 
fortunately, that's just the way my mind looks at things and does things as it comments through that, you know, because there's usually what, because if I look, if I open it up and look back at it, what makes me laugh is making comment about something through doing something funny, you know, uh, when I'm at, I think when I'm firing in all cylinders, sometimes it's just a silly joke and it's not much at all, you know, but sometimes I get, you know, I get bonuses and there's something else being done in there. Not always consciously, sometimes consciously, but not always. Yeah. Yeah. And does that also play out because you, you've kind of evolved into a mentor? Have you, have you, been a mentor to other emerging talent for a long time, or is that something that's relatively recent? Um, you know, and is it is it something that you're consciously gifting to to the folks that that you're bringing up, whether it's Issa Rae or I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's now a whole like some of the most successful people with some of the most successful shows now are folks that um, that you're actively mentoring. Is that part of the process for you? Oh, thanks, Corey. Yeah, that is a a conscious thing that maybe started maybe about 10 years ago, maybe at this point, you know, as I, as I'm getting older and stuff like that, you know, I found a a lot of satisfaction in doing that and collaborating and helping people find their own thing. Um, I think I'm just a natural collaborator in that way. Even back in my early days of stand up, when I be working with somebody, I think of jokes for their act, you know, in fact, it was easier for me to think of jokes for their act than it was to think of jokes for my act. Because it's like the character thing. You're thinking through the voice of the character. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. It was always harder to write my – in fact, my stand-up, maybe at, at the point I quit, but a big criticism that I make of my own stand-up is it never fully res- represented me, like getting to know who I really was because I think I hid out a lot, you know. And I hit out by doing clever jokes and satirical things and that kind of stuff and commenting on the culture. But I was never really commenting on me. You know, there was only when I when I was close, when I was starting to write for television, wasn't doing that much stand up. I started to finally write some jokes that were actually about me. You know, it's so funny. And but I think I always felt uncomfortable about that for for whatever reason. But I think if I had just kept doing stand up. I might have done more of that. And I think I would have been a better stand-up because of it. Oh, that's interesting. Would you ever go back to stand-up or is that kind of time past? No, not really. The lifestyle I never really cared for. Yeah. And it was always limiting writing-wise. You know, I think if I had done that graduation, I would have found more fulfillment. But at that point, the writing was a bit limited because I got a lot of ideas for movies or for TV shows or sketches. They weren't just ideas for jokes because there's joke ideas that you have. But then there's an idea that you have that may be funny, but it doesn't belong in a stand-up routine. It maybe belongs on a sitcom. Right. You know, it's a maybe the joke is a conflict. So does it, stand-up doesn't really serve it well. Another form serves it well. So I'm so fascinated by how you got from studying theater in college. And you, did, did you ever go back and get your degree, or you just? No, I never did. I always thought about it, but. Yeah, one regret that I have. Yeah, so, um, so not one. I'm sure, I'm sure I have other regrets in there. <laughs> yeah, so this, I, I, we, we'd be here a long time if it's we something I wish I had gone back and done. Yeah, regrets. Yeah. I, I have was, a few. Yeah, um, I was. I, I'm so curious how you got from studying theater in college to like huh. this prolific writer producer, and you you've also talked a lot about being an athlete as a kid. Did you take and, and I, I hear you talking to people, to athletes or to um, you had a, a person on just recently on your show um, who says Sally. Jenkins, yeah. Actually, what a great talking. conversation. 
Yeah, her book is all about, I think, what you're about to say. Yeah. Well, I was curious if you took that mind, the mindset of an athlete or the discipline of an athlete yeah. and applied it to your work now. Like, like you're talking, like you're, pri- you're primarily identifying as a writer, you know, and yet you hate writing. But is it that like athletes Absolutely. mentality of, of, you know, no, I got to do my drills. I got to practice. I got to, you know. The thing is, though, I never the only thing I hated in sports was hell week in football. Mm. I hated that. Everybody hated that because it's just the hardest thing in the world. But I actually enjoyed uh, working out like I used to work out before our season started. So I used to run around my block getting in shape before we started to get in shape. Like I used to do it myself. My dad played football in college and he ran track. And I think it was just kind of in me. I just did that. But I always worked on myself. My, the, my competitions in my life has always been more with myself than with other people or things. So like making 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 sure I'm doing something better this time than I did the last time, you know, trying to beat my own record as opposed to I'm going to beat that person. You know, it was more important for me to compete with myself most of the time. And I, um, so sports, you know, who, you know, it's the ultimate. It has both of those, you know, in spades trying to be better at something and then you have to compete at the same time. So it was good. Writing and being funny and comedy is very difficult. <clears throat> Stand up is very difficult. But you're not really competing with other stand-ups, even though stand-ups feel like they are. You're really competing with yourself to be as the best kind of comedy you can be and make that audience laugh. That's enough. That's two competitions right there already. Right. You know, to add the third one is is a bit overwhelming. But yeah, sports kind of gave me that. It kind of gave me a framework for having a discipline to do something on my own, you know, to do something like I have to say first stand up. It it affected that even more so than writing because I was already a professional comic by the time I started writing for a living and all that. So but um yeah, sports kind of gave me that framework I think early on. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you discover podcasting? Well, that came after the nightly show went down. I did an episode of Bill Simmons show on HBO and um Tommy Alter who was working on the show had worked on my show. A few months later, he's saying, hey, man, do you ever think about doing a pod? And I said, you know, tell me I thought about it. I don't know much about it. He said, well, Bill would like to talk about it, you know, if you're interested. And I said, I had lunch with him. We talked for a long time. And he, he thought, you know, you might be good. And I thought, yeah, it is something I, I as a way to keep in. I've found it as a way to keep in touch with the audience that maybe I had on the nightly show. And I really do like interviewing people, something I didn't get a chance to really do on the nightly show. And I really didn't like that. In fact, I had a, you know kind of a fight with that with the network because they didn't want me to do that because, you know, John was interviewing people. Our thing was more of a conversation, which was fine, but I really do like the one-on-one interview, you know, and the talk. So I thought, oh, this would be good. While I'm doing these other things, I felt I could do the podcast kind of moonlighting on the side as a way to keep that muscle going. So that's how it first started. That's kind of why I did the play and weren't black on the air for back on the air or that type of thing. Yeah. 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 No, it's, um, it's, I guess what we were talking about before, it's where we get closest to hearing, not closest, it's where where we're hearing your voice, you know? That's right. So (laughs) that's right. Because it's not filtered by having to please a TV network or, you know, having to be on a certain side of an argument or that type of thing or feeling or whatever, just, I don't care, just say what I want to say. And 
talk to who I want to talk to. It's great. It's very liberating, actually. And it's a medium that allows for a lot more nuance. One of my favorite uh, interviews was a few years ago in 2019. You did a, what did you call it again? Prisoner Exchange with uh, Ben Shapiro. Do you remember those conversations? Yes, that's right. That's right. That was, that was funny. It was fascinating. I love those guys. I listened to the one that you did on his show. I think it was, it mm-hmm. was one of the best interviews you did because you, you clearly come from different places politically, but the, yeah. the nuance allowed for the conversation to air out where the differences were yeah. in a, in a, in a civil way, an intelligent way. Absolutely. Uh, and, and uh, how was that experience for you? Was he, was he an asshole off the air or was he just like, what? No, it- ben was great. He was great. His whole team was great. They were very nice. Um, he came over to my place too. And we talked, you know, um, I'd like to do more of that with people who, you know, people consider that I'm on the left, which is fine. I have no problem with that. I've considered myself more centrist, but you know, sometimes that's a bad word these days. Who knows why, you know, but, um, but at that point, Ben was just emerging as one of those voices on the right that I thought was important. I thought he seems to have a growing audience here. And so I just wanted to learn who he was. That's where I was coming from that point of view. And I actually reached out to him directly and he said, sure, I'll come on, but you have to come on mine. I'm like, sure, of course, absolutely. So it kind of happened like that. But I like to talk to people though. I, my purpose isn't to like gotcha interview or that type of thing. The purpose that I really have in my pod is I, I want to know who this person is. I want to have a conversation with them. It's like if I invited them into my house and we were talking, you know, so I approach it from that standpoint more than anything else, you know, and yeah, so I like having those types of conversations, especially when you know you're going to disagree with somebody. And then you want to find out what is the real nature of the disagreement. You know, there may be some things that, wow, you're crazy. And something's like, yeah, OK, I agree with that, you know. Yeah. And I find I find it unlike some people, I find disagreement interesting. You know, I don't find it threatening. Many people find disagreement threatening, which is crazy to me. I used to be on a debate team in high school. That's all it was was about dis- disagreement. Yeah. You know? Uh, so I find disagreement interesting because there's always going to be something in there that's going to be maybe a discovery for me. And back to my scientific mind and where I start from is I love making discoveries. What is something I can find out about this? Make a discovery. I don't approach it from a hard journalism point of view where <clears throat> I'm doing more of an excavation of someone's ideology and challenging them that there's like, there's enough of that out there. I feel, I mean, I could do that, but that's not enjoyable to me. It's more fun to bring maybe something out in the person that maybe we don't get to see all the time. And and the only way I can do that is through long form conversation where we get to a point where there's trust, you know, and then through trust, you can ask them questions at that point that maybe you couldn't ask in the beginning, you know, and you find out something about them that maybe you wouldn't be able to normally find out in most interviews. Because when most people who have any kind of notoriety or fame or whatever, when they do interviews, there's about for 20 or 30 minutes, it's the same questions they get all the time, yeah. you know, and they're going to give you pretty much the same answers they give all the time. And you're not going to learn much about them. You're only going to kind of get the talking points. So I like to break all that up and ask different questions. And, and I like to be a little unstructured, even though I have my journey, I like it to be unstructured. If it happens to go to a place, I like to go to that place. So I approach it 
more as a conversation than I do an interview. Yeah. And that's what you want to have on my show. So I apologize, by the way, if you've had all of these questions a hundred times before. Um, oh, no, 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 no. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> okay. So- I'm, I'm saying it for the benefit of the audience yeah. to know how when you see people on television, especially television, oh, even yeah. more so than podcasts don't have this issue. If you have a long form conversation, right? It's, it's not, you get to go to those areas. So those, you know, who cares about the first part of it, but on television, you're only going to get pieces of people and it's, they're going to be giving the same answers to the same things most of the time because they're being asked the same things, or it's going to be, you know, there's going to be some conflict in the exchange that is the same conflict you see every time. Yeah. And just get so focused on whether they're right or wrong, as opposed to, is this even interesting? Right. (laughs) Right. Are we learning something, but they get caught up. Well, what's right is this and you're wrong. Well, I think what I'm saying is right. And when I'm wrong, I said, well, I don't find that interesting. (laughs) Just, just, you know, yeah. Disagreeable agreements is what they are. That said, I, I was listening to I, there are some some podcasters that I study their work. Like Mark Marin, I think is a brilliant conversationalist. Uh, sometimes yeah. it goes more in the way of interview. And he had one recently with uh, Ben Kingsley, and he was very huh? candid. He was very open at on the front end of it and said, "This just did not go well. <laughs> ben did not want to be there, and you know he was very oh, open wow. about it. it. Was a very uncomfortable experience for him, and he just did the best he could do. I was so I was curious if have you ever had have you if if you get a chance, just look it up. It's maybe two or three weeks ago. Uh, but that first segment, system, but I could definitely see something like that happen. Yeah. Happening. So it made me curious if you've ever had someone on your, on your program, black on the air that you were like, Oh man, this is not going well. Or this person's a complete asshole. And has it just had you have, I won't say who it is, but I had an interview once where, you know, it was like one word answers. Yeah. I know Brandy just texted to me. I know Brandy. Um, <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. It was uh, one word answers, two word answers. They were just being really difficult for no reason at all. They were being a little crazy. It was so, it was just not a conversation. You know, it was just terrible. Then at the end of it, it was was a little tense. And when the person left, this is when we're still doing it in person. I was like, we are not airing that. (laughs) That is not going out there. Let's book somebody else and fill the slot. And we never did, never had the person back on. Sometimes that name comes up and I'm like, why would it? No, of course not. You know. So, Brandy, I'll tell you mine off the air if you tell me yours. But we, yeah, we don't have to do it right y'all. now on the air. So, a re- yeah, there's no point in me saying it on the no, air. No, no, no. It's fine. Um, so a related question. Would you ever have someone like Donald Trump on your show? And if so, how might that conversation – how might you prepare for that? How might, it, how might the conversation go? I wouldn't have him now, but I would have had him in 2015. Interesting. Um, what, so uh, I could imagine why the difference is, but why don't, why don't you mm. tell me why? Well, there was a lot we didn't know in 2015. And so my conversation could have been a discovery type of conversation, you know, because here was a person on the scene who had never been on the political scene there, president. But I don't think you can have a real conversation with Donald Trump. And so for me, it would be pointless to try to engage in that because I don't believe I could engage in a real conversation with him. Yeah. Yeah. He's almost become, he's become a a caricature of the caricature he already was, you know, and it's just gotten worse and worse. Um, So it has nothing to do with agreeing or disagreeing with him, by the way. It's just, I feel he would be impossible 
to interview, to really have a conversation with. I guess if, I guess for me, I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying, but for me, if there's no mooring to any sense of truth, like where, where's our connecting point? Like where's our mutually agreed upon surface, you know? And I just don't think there's any relation to truth or any commitment to truth. So that, that's, but also I'll give you another thing too. And I'll, I'll put that in a different way. It's like you're talking to a character, so you can't get anything real back. You know, like if I had to do an interview with a character from a TV show as opposed to the actor, like they were in character the whole time. Yeah. It's like, well, I can't have a real conversation. This doesn't make sense. You know, that's um, so would you have the Stephen Colbert from before? Not the Colbert of today, but the Colbert of, you know, whatever it was. I would not because I couldn't have a, my show was about keeping it 100 percent real. OK. The nightly show, you know. So I couldn't have Colbert on my show. He wasn't real. It would it would have lasted ten seconds. You oh, know? okay, all right. Who, what are we going to talk about? So who who's out there on your on your wish list, folks that you'd, oh, dead or alive? Who would you love to have on your show? I mean, we talked about Houdini and the Marx Brothers. I would imagine you'd love to talk to those guys. But are there other people that are still alive that? Uh, who, who's on your wish list? You're, you're, if you could have, wave a magic wand, well, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I've said this answer before. And when I first said it, I'm like, mm, why did I say that? But I think I would still like to do it. I would love, and this is this is probably impossible, which is why it's, I'm probably saying it. But if I could have a real conversation with the Pope, oh, I would love that. Yeah. You know, and be able to ask him real questions and some really hard questions, too. I mean, I grew up Catholic, you know. But there are a lot of questions I would like to ask him directly and engage in a conversation, including the existence of God. You know, yeah. Uh, so, so the Pope would be tops of my list, but I'm I'm not that interested in politicians. I'm just not. Um, I'm more interested in people that have maybe done adventures in their lives, or maybe scientists who are making discoveries or that type of thing. You know. Um, but I have no interest. I have no interest in famous people either. Um, just because they're famous, that doesn't mean that much to me. So. Yeah, you know, there there are certain types of politicians or certain types of people in the public square, you know, that have a high public profile that, that I'm interested in. Uh, but it's usually yeah. because they're a little different. Like people in the um, uh, the problem solvers caucus, people who've had to um, take you know take take some risks and and there's been a cause mm-hmm. to them taking certain votes um it, you know pol- certain politicians or you know some someone like you, you you've had such a varied career uh that mm-hmm. there's so much there's so much to talk about and it seems like you're doing something more than just like writing a an entertaining script it seems like you're doing something that has a a greater meaning that you're, you're striving for something of a greater meaning. That's why I was particularly interested in, in, in talking to you. Well, I appreciate that. I feel like in my work, I haven't done that so much in my scripted work. I've done it more in my, on the daily show type of thing, nightly show. That's where I really have married those things. But if I'm looking, I'm looking back at just the stuff I've written. I really haven't married those two things in the other work. Like the Bernie Mac show was just about raising kids. There wasn't anything higher at work there. Or nothing being corded away. I, the PJs was close because there was a lot of satire in the PJs about the culture and stuff. There was a lot. So the PJs is the closest thing to where I'm really putting something else in there, you know, that I, is kind of connected. 
I would push back on the Bernie Mac thing because you you were maybe it wasn't the the meaning per se, but the very premise of the show, number one, but also what you were doing with the form. You know, you were testing. Yes, I was breaking the mold with the form and that was a conscious attempt to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to um, I want to ask you a couple of uh, I, I know you have a, a hard out at a certain point, so I want to ask you some wrap up questions here. Um, I got lots more questions, but you know um, sure. maybe that's for part two. So uh, the TPNR question: What do you think each of us can do to be better able to share space with, have better conversations, like the one that you had with Ben Shapiro and others uh, that I'm sure you've had? Um, nurture relationships with people across our differences. So people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? Oh, it's definitely possible. I gave this lecture once at, what's the Kennedy School at Harvard? I think this was maybe 2017, maybe. I think it was called that. And I had... There was a dinner afterwards. It was a pretty big arena where I got to talk to students and that kind of stuff. And I love talking to students. Um, I love I love it as a two way conversation too, not just one way. I like to hear what's going on in their minds. What are they What are they processing now? You know what's happening. And you know, I think I have a lot of trust with young people for whatever reason. Um, maybe because I'm a kid at heart. Who knows? <laughs> but what, if I say something they disagree with, I, I feel like they don't get too threatened by, it, which is nice. You know. But they asked me kind of this question, you know, and I said, here's what you should do. And you should do this consciously. Don't make it be an accident. Make friends with somebody who has a different political um, outlook than you do. Make friends with them. You know, somehow just manifest it. You know, even if you aren't going to look for it specifically, manifest it. Put it out in the air, you know, but find somebody who... You have that kind of worldview difference with and make friends with them, get to know them, see who they are, you know, and you'll find that that doesn't have to be a thing to divide you. It can just be a difference that you have, you know, difference doesn't have to be divisive, you know, it could just be difference, you know, and, and they were, they reacted like, that's impossible. <laughs> I was like, guys, no, it's not. My friends are probably 50-50 divided. You know, I have just as many friends on the right as I have on the left, you know. And uh, and it's always been that way in my life. It's because I don't make that distinction. You know, I, I don't choose friends for that reason, you know, or people I find interesting. So I'm always having conversations, you know, with people who I may disagree with politically in that or that. It's not just a couple of times on my podcast, even, or this and that, that's what my life is. You know, it's how you stay out of being in a bubble. It's so easy to get, there's so many types of bubbles you can be trapped in, you know, and that type of your own worldview type of bubble is easy to get trapped in. And to me, once again, it has nothing to do with wrong and right. Who's right or who's wrong. That's the wrong way to look at it. You know, it just really has to do with, um, having true diversity in your life, you know, opening yourself up to other people's experiences. Because what it does is it allows you to have what I think is one of the most important things you can have as a human being, and that's empathy. If you just stay in your bubble, you stop being able to have true empathy. All you have is relatability to someone you agree with. That's what you have. That's not empathy, you know. So as you're saying this, it occurs to me that the writer strike is still going on. It's been going on for a few months. 
is it harder to do that with the folks across the table uh, in the in the negotiation? You can't do that in a bargaining session. You know, <laughs> you don't want empathy in a bargaining session. <laughs> you, have to use, you have to use different tools when working with these uh, hard ass lawyers. Completely different. Throw everything I just said. Throw out of the window <laughs> if you're involved in collective bargaining. Yeah, listen to nothing they say. I'm just talking in the micro in terms of your personal friendships, but not in the macro. If you're engaged in, you know, in that type of business. Fair enough. There's a difference between macro, by the way, too. People should know things that apply in the micro don't necessarily apply in the macro. Like, I'm not suggesting this for political conversations in the macro. You know, if you're fighting for certain things, you know, you should fight for those things. And of course, you should align yourselves with people who agree with them and you see eye to eye. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the micro as individuals, what we can do as people you know, that sort of thing, I think, is different. So it's good to make that distinction. Yeah. So you're talking mostly in the in the um, uh, I'll call it the evergreen, perhaps in, in more of the macro uh, philosophical realm. But the, the one timely thing is this writer strike. Can you for for listeners, can you can yeah. you help us understand what the writers are currently fighting for? What's at stake? Mm-hmm. There's anytime there's something comes to a strike, that means there's something that the group is facing, in this case, the writers. And I was on the board of directors for the Writers Guild back in the early aughts. And the last time we had a strike in 2007, I was on the negotiating committee. So I was at those bargaining tables, you know, so I know what that feels like. Um, But there's usually something at stake that is usually, I'll use the word existential to the writers. You know, it's really, it's too big of an issue to just ignore or put off till later. It has to be, it has to be decided upon now. And usually... When what you bargain for at, during these meetings is you're bargaining for what's called the MBA, and that's the minimum basic agreements. And so you're not bargaining for the top writers to get, you know, these big salaries or anything. You're you're bargaining to protect the writers at the lowest levels and the most basic needs, everything from healthcare to how you get paid to how many hours you have to work to what size rooms are. So because streaming was a big disruptor in showbiz for writers, and we probably don't have enough time to go through all of the reasons why, but one of the big reasons, one of the big things that happened was this thing called mini rooms uh, started happening where you could kind of figure out what a season was at a mini room. And then when you start shooting it, you could get rid of that mini room. And then suddenly many of the writers don't have a job or these types of things. I'm giving a real quick example of it, but this has changed the economics for writers who could count on a certain type of living and won't be able to count on that now. It affects everything from their health care to, you know, residuals to being able to take care of themselves long term. So many issues. So that's just one issue that is a huge issue to have a, an agreement that protects writers on it. You know, there are other issues to do with compensation and streaming now and that type of thing. And some of those are a little more complicated and that type of thing. But but. And artificial intelligence is one of those issues that who knows what's going to happen, you know, and it's one of those issues. And the same thing with Screen Actors Guild that can be such a huge disruptor in how writers work, how they engage with studios, you know, who has ownership of content, Mm. by the way, was a huge issue. Is there compensation for ownership anymore? You know, (laughs) How is how do you uh, 
define compensation or and or ownership and those types of things. It's changing and artificial intelligence is part of that issue too. So there's a lot of issues that are, some are philosophical, but it can affect the pocketbook immediately. And some are immediate pocketbook things and that type of thing. So there are big issues right now that are different than anything the writers have ever faced because of the uh, different technologies of streaming and digital and artificial intelligence. So is there any hope of this thing winding down anytime soon or is this going to go on for a while? I'll be honest with you. I have no, I'm not plugged in like I used to be. So I have no idea what to know or expect as we're speaking right now. And the people that are listening know the answer to this though. But in a couple of days, we'll know whether the actors are going to strike screen actors go, which I'm also a part of, but I think I identify more than the writers go. But by the time people listen to this, the actors may be on strike, which who knows what that's going to do. And if the actors aren't on strike, that could help the writers. And on the other hand, it may leave the writers stranded Mm. out there as well. And it could go on for, for a while, which is not good for anybody. Oh man. Well, I don't want to end on a, a dour note, so I, know, I have a little more time. You can ask a couple of fun questions. Okay. All yeah. right. Well, I do want to ask, give you an opportunity. Do, do you have any questions for me? Uh, you know, it's funny. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I don't know if I have any questions, but uh, you say talk. A, do you talk a lot about religion on this show? And do you get I, do you have uh, discussions about religion or about God or about those types of things. I, we do, we do. And I, I've heard you talk about, you know, the difference between believing in God and, and uh, religion, um, your feelings about religion per se. So we do talk, in fact, in a couple of days, I'm talking to Dr. Russell Moore, who used to be the head of the, um, uh, the ERLC with the Southern Baptist convention and basically got kicked out. He's uh, he landed on his feet though. He's editor in chief of Christianity today. So he's doing pretty well, mm-hmm. but just so somebody like that is interesting to me because he grew up in the Southern Baptist at, 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 in a Southern mm-hmm. Baptist church. And, you know, he, he was very early on and saying, Hey, we can't hitch our wagon to this Trump train. Uh, and it cost him dearly. He was basically ostracized by all his people. Um, basically he got, you know, squeezed out of the, out of the church, out of his position over time. Um, but mm-hmm. he held on to his, um, his ethics. So uh, I give him mm-hmm. a lot of credit. Those, those are the folks that are most interesting to me, but it's also because I have existential questions that I'm grappling with, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the right. same ones, a lot of folks what, do. What is your biggest, what's your biggest existential question? Oh boy. Um, I think it, it has to do it has to do with meaning. It depends on the day. That's that's the real answer. It depends on the day. Um, so some days it's uh, it's more of like um, the potter saying to the, the the clay saying to the potter, "Why have you made me thus?" Um, there there are I have proclivities and certain um, obstacles uh, that I struggle with, as as many people do. So uh, days when those um, those are flaring a little bit more, um, that that's mm-hmm. the question. Other days. It, it's it has more to do with meaning, the meaning of existence, the meaning of the universe. You know, not to get too philosophical on you, but like, there's got to be a reason why we're conscious. You know, there's got to be a reason why we're here. There's, or maybe not. What if there isn't? <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, what if conscious? Why does consciousness have to be divine? Like, it. Well, that's I, I didn't think of it in those terms, but. It's just consciousness. It's just like, and look what happens when people get Alzheimer's or their brain starts breaking down. 
is that this is consciousness the same then is the same person there is it is there a different thing happening when you know something physiologically changes that you know yeah sen- sentience to me is 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 a big separator but that that's that's a challenging question to you know with Alzheimer's, for example, is that person still that person? You know, the same way we would talk about it. You talked about it with Ben Shapiro about the beginning of life. You know, there's a biological mm-hmm. life there, but at what point is there sentience there? And does that make it a different sort of a life? I mm-hmm. I think that there is something transcendent, the numinous in us. Um, so I still grapple with that. Um, you know, I bring it to more of a comedic uh, way to frame it is I can make an argument that Donald Trump is not in fact human. <laughs> and, and where I would start is a couple a lot of people would agree with you. I don't think that's an argument at all. <laughs> I, I would start with a couple of pieces of evidence. Say, go on, go on. <laughs> yeah. Your next right, right. So a couple of pieces of, of empirical evidence. Some of the things that make us uniquely human is our response to music. No matter how beautiful a deer is, no matter how beautiful a dog is, you're not necessarily – actually, my dog, Charles Mingus III, had a response to Charles Mingus. So, Charles Mingus. <laughs> yeah. So we, we – uh, so that maybe that's arguable. But like if you ever see Donald Trump in a room where music is playing, he has no actual human response to it. <laughs> yeah, he's very mechanical. The other one is laughter. Laughter is uh, arguably a uniquely human function, a uniquely human response. There's never yeah. laughter the way we think of laughter to something humorous. There's cruelty expressed as laughter. So a couple of pieces of empirical – if I were to write a thesis, I would start with about you know, Donald Trump is not in fact human. That, that's where I would it start. It's like you're drawing a line to that. Once again, I'll say this. Why, why is laughter – why does that have a line drawn to divinity, to the existence of something else? Yeah. Like why can't it exist on its own? Like why – in other words – why can't humans just have bigger brains where there's more of a neural response to certain things that maybe other uh, creatures don't have? Right. You know, it's a fair point. So I, I have decided that there are a couple irreducible facts for me that I can't necessarily prove to anyone else. And the first is that there is a God. I just came to that conclusion that there's an, there's not a closed universe within which only natural phenomena can happen. I decided philosophically that there's an open universe, that there's something beyond the physical, um, which opens the possibility for a God. Right. Um, and I'm yeah. skipping over a lot of, uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of steps here that I get from here to there. But the second one is that if there is a God, I am not God. And that one to me is much more empirically verifiable <laughs> than, than even the first one. So I would agree. <laughs> yeah. I've proved All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, but you're right. There there is a leap, uh, a leap of faith, I guess you could say, between okay, uniquely human, even uh, feelings of transcendence, um, mm-hmm. those those pillars of what make us who we are. You know, in the, yeah. the Lord, you know, the um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if, if we just think of those four pillars of heart, soul, mind, and strength, like I don't know that it is. It's fair to we'd have to sit here a lot longer to get from what is uniquely mm. human and transcendent to the existence right. and presence of a God. So uh, I feel for me, the simple part of it is I think one of the things humans have that if it seems to me that other creatures don't seem to have, because some of the, the feelings, some of the things on the feelings chart, it seems like 
some animals do have, like, you know, they've shown clips of elephants in mourning, you know, which is fascinating, you know, to see an animal in mourning for something. You know, dogs have displayed some of this type of behavior, too, you know. Yeah. Um, which is much more complicated emotion than just joy, you know, because we're all used to our animals expressing joy. But an animal to express mourning for something, you know, sorrow, that type of thing, it feels a little more complicated, you know. So who knows? Maybe there's some animals that have even a more complication, not quite human, but a complication of emotions. So, yeah. But on a cognitive level, what it appears that animals don't have that I haven't seen and maybe someone's document is the ability to reflect, you know, is to not just act out of instinct, but actually to have a reflection, you know, to to think outside of, you know, judging something immediately in front of you as something, but actually reflect about something. And to me, the ability to, to reflect opens up, you know, the need to examine your life, let's just say. And I think one of the hardest questions that humans have had to deal with is life and death, you know, issues, knowing that this is all going to end. And that is a very... um it's a very sad thing to think about. And it causes a lot of grief. You know, it causes a lot of uh, consternation, you know, and worry. And people, it, I, I think humans have a natural proclivity to want to give something meaning. If it doesn't have meaning, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like, you know, it's worth it. And if their life doesn't have meaning... What is the point? A dog never worries about his life having me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or even a sunrise, like the deer might be on the hill in front of a sunrise, but yeah. isn't necessarily saying, wow, what a beautiful sunrise, you know? Doesn't require meaning. So to me, if you're if I'm taking the spiritualness out of this equation and just think of the the bio the biology of it, um, it makes sense to me that humans had to create a God and a possibility that their life can have more meaning than just what is in front of them, which is you are born, you grow older and you die and you're gone. And that's it. Because if you think about it in that form, if that's all, that is a very hard thing to accept. It's very difficult that that is just it. So, you know? so I'm going to take a little bit of, I'm going to try, and this is not a well-formed thought yet, but I'm going to take a, a little bit of Larry Wilmore philosophy wisdom and, and make an argument um, for the value of religion or religious experience or rituals. Um, and that is there is mean, even if there is not a God and we don't, all the people involved in religious experiences don't uh, believe in the, in the presence of God, the act right. of getting together, like in Jewish religion, you know, uh, Purim mm -hmm. and Passover. I love Passover. I love the Seder. You know, or I, I became a Christian in my adult life. Like I, I love, you know, the baptisms. I love those rituals where you're marking time together, you know, sure. however you make up your family, whether it's, uh, you know, husband, wife, kids, or whether your family is made up of, of friends and other, you know, fellows that you, 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 you bond with along sure. the way. If you're marking just a birthday, you know, if you're marking mm -hmm. time together throughout the year, each year, or certain moments in life, like a bar and bat mitzvah for Jewish people or, you know, uh, uh, in, in Catholic, what is it called? Your, your first communion, you know, 
there's there's, mm-hmm. there's meaning in that and there's richness in that whether there is a god or not so that's my mm-hmm. not very well formed but that's my first uh that's my first savvy that's my first you know well you know because now religion is separate from just the idea of god so th- so the fact of having a religion serves a lot of different purposes too. I agree with you. And community is one of the biggest reasons, you know, like how do you keep a group of people together? You know, there has to be something more than our food is right there. We should be in this space, you know, like after a certain number of years, humans realize we need something more. Our community is growing here. Something other than just our food is here. Something has to keep us together, you know? Yeah. And so you need certain mythologies like religion, like values, like tribalism, like these things to keep people in certain places together, you know, and to be working towards the same types of things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very natural human thing to want to do is to have meaning in cultural exchange, you know, and those types of things. Once again, it's giving meaning to something, you know? Yeah. And that's what the conversations about politics and religion are for me. It's both subject, both areas are ways of figuring out how do we live well among each other and with each other? That's really the bigger, Mm -hmm. geez, I should have, I should have let you ask me a question much earlier in the conversation. Seems like we got a lot more to talk about. But um, (laughs) before we go, how can folks follow you, find more information about, you know, all the great work you're doing, your awesome podcast. So I have a podcast called Black on the Air. It's part of the Ringer Network um, out of Spotify, but you could get it anywhere. You get your podcast. Um, hopefully we'll be doing some, you know, I'm trying to shake things up sometimes, but, you know, we'll see. Who knows? Um, there is a writer strike right now, but normally I have a show called Reasonable Doubt that I'm one of the producers on. Carrie Washington, it's on Hulu. It's a real fun show, especially if you like those soapy things that Carrie Washington is known for. Not necessarily my brand, but I think there's something there for people. Um and other than that, I'm on Twitter. I just joined Threads, awesome. which who knows if that's going to be a thing. Um, What's your I'm handle on, on Threads? Is it the same as Twitter? Same as Instagram. So if you, it's Larry Wilmore at Larry Wilmore. Okay. So yeah, if you follow me on Instagram, I'm already there. We'll put all those and, links on the know, in the show notes. So yeah, yeah. So you know, it's all fun. I don't post that much these days. Sometimes I'll joke about something, but. Yeah, sometimes I'll post about my dog and people really like that. Or usually I'll I'll be promoting something, letting people know what's coming up. So yeah, it's a good thing to look at that to see what's happening. Yeah. I like I like Larry Wilmore in, in spaces where there's room for nuance. That's that's I think my big take yeah. today. <laughs> my favorite spaces, yeah. yeah. Which ironically, you know, Facebook had that promise of that but didn't wasn't quite you know, and didn't quite live up to that type of thing. Larry, I really appreciate this, man. It, it's so great to talk to you. It's so great to get to know you. I love diving into your work on a much deeper level and, and getting to know you a lot better. That. And I really appreciate your time, man. Your time is, is valuable. And um, I just really appreciate you taking the time to just hang out with me for a bit. Thanks, Gar. I will say one last thing. If people kind of like my performing work, I'm in a movie called Jerry and Marge Go Large. You can find it on Paramount Plus. Um, with uh, Brian Cranston and Annette Bening, I was like the third lead in it. It was one of the most fun things I've done. It's a f- movie for the whole family, by the way. It's based on a true story of a guy who kind of did this thing with the lottery. It's so much fun. And one of the things that I am probably going to do is be more out there as a performer and actor and that type of thing. So fans of mine who like to see me in front of the camera, um, I'll be trying to do more of that for you. So there. It was a great movie. I, I saw it right when it came out. So yeah, to your point, it was it was awesome. 
So thanks again. And uh, real quick, as always, if you dig what we're doing, please hit that subscribe or follow button. Like I said earlier, if you could take the time to leave a review and comments, it really does help. And uh, give me a shout online. I'm at Corey S. Nathan on all the socials, even threads now. That's Corey with an E, S is in Sam, at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. <laughs>